facts have fallen on kind of hard times today. We're told by sociologists that we're living in a post-truth world, that from all sides we're told that reality is malleable. About a half decade ago, the phrase alternative facts entered our vocabulary. The idea that we can change reality simply by saying something is so enough, by believing it and convincing other people to believe it. Other people to believe it. That's uh, not an exaggeration. Last summer, a reporter stood in front of a building in Wisconsin that was engulfed in flames and told us with dead earnestness that what we were observing was mostly peaceful protests. In 2012, a mentally deranged man went into an elementary school in Connecticut with a semi-automatic rifle and killed 20 school children. One purveyor of alternative facts, fearing that such news might infringe on his Second Amendment rights, uh, told people that the event never really happened, that it was made up. The thought is, if I believe something fervently enough, if I can get other people to go along with it, then I can bend reality to what I want it to be. Faith has become the most important thing in our world today. And Christianity stands in opposition to that notion. As surprising as some would find it, Christianity is not established upon a foundation of faith, but it's established upon a foundation of facts. God's existence does not depend upon faith. God exists in and of himself, regardless of what you believe about him or I believe about him or what anybody believes about him. The reality of hell and the existence of heaven does not depend on whether you believe in it, or I believe in it, or anybody believes in it. And our salvation depends not on what you or I or anyone believes about it, but on what God has done in history. Now, you'll say, but surely faith has to play some part in it. And certainly we are called to trust in God. But it's his actions in history, not our faith, that is the foundation of our salvation. Our salvation does not rest upon our faith, but upon facts that God has accomplished. Today on Palm Sunday, I want to read to you from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. 
Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the signs they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. It will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And Father, today may we recognize your coming. Father, may we embrace this one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, not as we believe him to be or would like him to be, but as he really is. And in him, Father, let us find our salvation and be confident in it. For we ask it of you, O Lord, for his glory and for our good and in his name. Amen. Perhaps you've noticed that the historic creeds that we recite week by week, the apostles and the Nicene creeds, that those historic creeds are also largely historical creeds. That by and large, they're given over to the statement of facts that have taken place in history. They speak very little about what happens outside of history, except for the opening declaration of I believe or we believe. They say nothing about faith. They don't speak of the necessity of faith. They don't give definitions to faith. Instead, they catalog for us a number of facts. Facts upon which our salvation depends. And the bulk of the words of those creeds uh, are about the Son. It speaks about the Father and it speaks about the Holy Spirit, but the bulk of those creeds is given over to the Son. And the bulk of those words tell us about what the Son has done as he has appeared in history. That he was made man, that he suffered and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Those things, of course, are all things that Christians believe, but they're not things that require faith to observe. Anyone who was present in Jerusalem that night could have beheld the birth, or at least could have been beheld the newborn. 
Anyone who encountered Jesus in his earthly ministry could see his humanity. In fact, the Pharisees could see his humanity so clearly that they were a bit put off when he said things that seemed like he was indicating that he was something more than human. And Pontius Pilate is well documented as the Roman governor of Judea, the longest serving Roman governor from AD 26 to AD 36. And we have coins that bear his inscriptions. We have something called the Pilate Stone that is a dedication stone to a temple uh, built to Tiberius in Palestine. Philo of Alexandria and Flavius Josephus speak a great deal about his career and governorship. And there were many people who did not believe in Jesus who stood and witnessed the crucifixion. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that faith is unimportant. But I'm saying that it's not of ultimate importance. What God has done for us and for our salvation is. Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time on what we would come to call Palm Sunday. And as he did so, people there had a strong faith that he was the king who would change their circumstances. We read that as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the signs they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. There was in the first century in Judea a strong messianic expectation and hope. It was a hope for a renewed worldly national sovereignty among the Jews. It was a hope for a renewed freedom out from under the restriction of the Romans. It was a hope for relief from the burden of Roman taxes. And you have to understand the strong faith that these people had in this to understand some of the things that Jesus did. Why in John chapter 6, when people came to Jesus to make him king by force because they had great faith in the kind of king he would be, that he withdrew from them and hid himself from them. Why he so often told people who recognize him as the Messiah not to tell anyone. And they believed so strongly that at times it looked to them as though they could believe their hopes into existence that they could bend reality to their will. And so this is called the triumphal entry. Jesus, though for his part, comes into Jerusalem as humbly as he can on a colt that no one else has ridden before. You get the significance of that? This is a, this is a young donkey. This is not a symbol of power or of conquering. And he comes into Jerusalem as humbly as he can. 
The people there see the significance of it. Perhaps and probably from what was said in Zechariah 9 that was read today. And they cheer him as Savior. Hosanna, come save. And his king. And the scene terrifies the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're saying that not out of anger or jealousy. They're saying that out of fear. Because if a messianic army uh, is raised or spontaneously forms around Jesus, Rome will crush them with brutality. John chapter 11 and verse 48, that fear is expressed. They say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and they'll take away our place and our nation. And it's reached a fever pitch here. People have a growing faith that Jesus is the Messiah and a growing faith in how things are going to change now that he is here. Let me remind you that our salvation does not rest upon our faith, but it rests upon the facts of what God has actually done. And their attitude toward Jesus would soon change. Because no one, it seems, no one was thinking that the Messiah would display God's power through weakness. But Jesus reminds his disciples of it one more time before they enter into the city. Just before they enter the city, back in chapter 18 and verse 31, we read Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. and They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what he was talking about. That wasn't their expectation. It wasn't their hope. It wasn't their belief. And as Jesus sat at the table with his disciples and he told them that one of them would betray him and the protest began, one of them said, betray you. He said, we'll we'll die with you. And when he was arrested, they fled. Please don't think that that was due to cowardice. It wasn't cowardice. It was confusion. They had every intention of dying with him, of fighting beside him, of bringing in the kingdom of God with the sword and dying for that cause if need be. But when he didn't fight, when he put out his hands to be bound, when he allowed himself to be led away as a sheep to the slaughter, 
Their faith was upended. This isn't what we were expecting. In John chapter 6, we read it a few weeks ago, when a crowd of up to then disciples began to catch on to what Jesus was really saying, they all turned away and left him. And how many would turn away from Jesus today if they actually listened to what he said? If they found out that he wasn't the Savior, the Messiah, that they had faith that he was, but he was the Messiah and the Savior who he actually is. And so in Luke 19 and verse 41, we read that as he approached Jerusalem, his people are cheering. And he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You understand here that Jesus is not weeping over their unbelief. He's weeping over their faith because they believe the Messiah is going to be a certain thing, do a certain thing. They had faith in a certain kind of Savior, a certain kind of Messiah. And so they couldn't recognize the Savior that God had sent them. And 40 years later, their faith would reach a fever pitch. And in messianic hope, they would take up arms and they would seek to cast off of them the Roman rule. They thought, perhaps if we get the ball rolling, then the Messiah will appear. And the result was that they're killed. Josephus said the the streets ran red with blood. Their temple was destroyed. And people were scattered out of Palestine to the ends of the earth because they didn't recognize the Messiah that Jesus, that God had sent them. All because they had faith, they had a belief, and they couldn't really see what God was doing. Salvation does not depend upon our faith. It depends on God's acts in history. And so while everyone was cheering that he was coming as a conquering king who would deliver them from the Romans and lower their taxes and give them freedom as they understood it, Jesus himself entered the city knowing that he was going to suffer under Pontius Pilate. In fact, it's the reason for which he came. You know, someone asked me one time, why is that, is that villainous Pontius Pilate immortalized in the creeds? There's no other merely human person mentioned in the creeds. 
we have mention of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but no other person, not Peter, not Paul, not John, not James, nobody else is mentioned except for Pontius Pilate. And he said, why is that? Well, I could venture for you some theological reasons. I think it was important that Jesus die under judicial condemnation. It wouldn't have done if he had died by falling off of a horse or falling among robbers. It's important that he die under judicial condemnation, that he carry the sentence of death. It was important, I think, that the judge who condemned him knew him to be innocent even when he was condemned. But those are theological conclusions. I think they're right, but they're theological conclusions which neither the text says nor the creeds reflect. But what is said and what is reflected? Well, the historical fact that he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And because he did, our salvation is secured. See, salvation does not rest upon your faith. It rests upon what God has done in history. And so the creeds don't explain or highlight faith, but instead they highlight and draw our attention to certain facts. And it is those facts by which we are saved. Now, our connection to them comes through faith, but faith is not the foundation. These things are true whether or not we believe them. And if we believe them, they're true for us no matter how fervently we believe them. And friends, that should bring you comfort. Sometimes people will say to me that they worry about their salvation because they think their faith is not very strong or their faith wavers. Maybe they think, I I, I don't have the, the theological insights that other people seem to have. That would be an enormous problem if your salvation was founded upon your faith. It's not. Your salvation doesn't rest upon your faith. Your salvation rests upon the facts of what God has accomplished in history for us and for our salvation. In a post-truth age, where faith is the most important thing, we can bend reality by what we believe, the gospel, the Christian message, stands in opposition. Your salvation does not rest upon the fervency of your faith, but it rests upon the reality of what God has done. And we're going to celebrate and commemorate what it is that God has done uh, in the breaking of this bread.
the distribution of this wine. I'll ask the elders if they'll come forward to help with that.